0: Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of The Conscious Capitalists, with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner, making the world a better place through business, Raj Sasodia.
2: Happy New Year, Raj. Happy New Year to you, Timothy, and welcome to these United States.
1: Yes, indeed. I've now moved from London to Washington, D.C., where we will be the center of many things that go on in 2024. So to start off the new year, we actually have a fascinating, uh, guest with us today. Kristen Neff is, um, a, uh, associate professor in educational psychology department, the university of Texas at Austin. She is the pioneer in the field of self compassion research, being the first person to actually operationally define and measure what we mean by that, the constructs she's published widely on this, including numerous articles book chapters, and a popular book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself. Also an associate editor at the Journal of Mindfulness, her work's been received extensive media coverage, lots of different places, including New York Times, MSNBC, National Public Radio, Scientific America, and Psychology Today. She is a co-founder of the Center of Mindful Self-Compassion. And the co-developer of the whole curriculum that lays behind the idea of mindful self-compassion and that's what we're going to talk about today self-compassion and the role for conscious leadership welcome Kristen.
0: ah hello thanks for having me i'm really excited about this conversation
1: oh brilliant we're so happy to have you as i mentioned uh, in the pre-podcast discussion i've been a fan of yours having read the book years ago And having done a retreat with one of your, your colleagues, um, it's just really an honor to have you. So thanks for being with us today. So let me begin for our audience with uh, a very broad question. Hey, what is this thing called self-compassion and why does it matter?
0: Yes. good, Good question. So if you just start with the word compassion in the Latin passion means to suffer and come is with, so it really refers to how are we with suffering. And usually we think of that in terms of how are we with the suffering of others or the world? Are we are we kind? Are we warm? Are we supportive? Um, or do we feel separate from others? Do we feel cut off? Do we feel cold or judgmental? And so self-compassion is really the same thing just turned inward. So how are we with our own suffering? Whether that comes from a life challenge we're going through, or maybe because we've made a mistake or we failed or we feel inadequate in some way. Are we with our our own pain and discomfort, with warmth, with support, with care, with the desire to help in some way, or are we cold, um, judgmental, and and cruel to ourselves? And what we find in the research, and perhaps this won't surprise many listeners, it seems to be much easier, and there's some reasons for this, but easier to be compassionate to others than it is to ourselves. So with self-compassion, we need to do a little intentional practice to do this U-turn, and treat ourselves the way we more naturally treat others. We care about at least.
1: Oh, I love that part where it's harder to be compassionate to ourselves than it is to others. Now that's a catchy phrase. So tell us a little bit more because that one I think is really important.
0: Yeah. Well, so first of all, if if that does apply to you, please don't beat yourself up for beating yourself up because (laughs) there are both strong cultural and evolutionary reasons. For doing so, so if we look physiologically first, evolutionarily, so the way the brain uh, evolved for human beings, when we are personally threatened, right, we we immediately go into fight, flight, or freeze mode, where so we, we we you know we fight the danger, we we flee from it, or we freeze and get stuck and play dead. And so when when we're the threat, in other words, when we look in the mirror, we don't like what we see, or we've made a mistake, or something really difficult is happening, we immediately go into fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, we criticize ourselves. We beat ourselves up. Do Either um, we think it's going to make us change so that we'll be safe, or maybe it'll beat others to the punch. If I criticize myself, it won't hurt so much if they do it. Or we flee into feelings of shame and isolation, thinking that somehow that makes us safe. Or we freeze, we ruminate about how bad we are. Maybe if I think about it for 50 times, the problem will go away. Now, when you're a good friend that you care about, let's say they lose their job or they don't like, they look in the mirror, they don't like what they see, you aren't personally threatened. So it's actually easier to, to use another safety system, which is also natural, which is also evolved, but evolved for others. And that's the care system. So the, the natural desire to alleviate suffering for those we care about, to be warm, supportive, like we are to are you know, maybe our infants or family members or other group members, that comes on much more easily for others. So what we're doing with self-compassion is we're doing a little hack. You know, we're hacking into the system that evolved for others and we're making this U-turn word to turn it inward to ourselves. So it's not difficult. It's not rocket science, but it's not entirely natural. Um
1: Yeah. yeah. I I, yeah, I love that the discussion about suffering and self-suffering, because I think that, you know, I'm 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 looking at my son, Michael. Please ignore this part of the podcast. And, you know, he's 24 years old and he's really attracted to the whole notion of stoicism. And This whole notion you know now until recently he was trying for the olympics and you know as an international athlete you go through a lot of suffering you know you get injured you get hurt you know all these things um but there seems to be among young people uh, and a a, a growing attraction particularly young men to the whole stoicism movement ryan holiday and the things that he's starting to put out there are around you know um this it seems to be almost the opposite of stepping into or accepting suffering, rather than you know embracing it, stepping into it, learning from it, evolving from it, there seems to be this other trend going in the other direction. That's like, oh, avoid it, push it down, be bigger than your suffering.
0: Well, you should tell your son about a, a study we just published actually earlier this year with, with NCAA athletes. You know, the, the the elite athletes in the United States. Uh, we taught them how to be self-compassionate toward their setbacks and their training routines or if they, you know, made a mistake in a game. And so for athletes, the most self-compassionate thing to do is to give yourself constructive feedback. It's not compassionate to say, oh, it's fine that you missed the field goal and lost the game for your team, because it's not fine. But what is compassionate is to say, okay, listen, you missed the field goal. What went wrong? What can we learn from this? Just because you fail doesn't mean that you're a failure. And so we we taught athletes how to have this voice of a really good, effective, but compassionate coach who says, I believe in you, you can do it. How can I help? Here's what you need to know. Here's how we learn from our setbacks. And uh, we found that their performance actually improved, both self-rated and coach-rated performance. So calling yourself a failure and a loser, what that does is it creates extra anxiety that's going to distract you from your ability to perform at your best. It's going to create fear of failure, right? It's going to mean that you're so focused on how bad you are. You're not going to be able to look at the learning opportunities. And by the way, this can be a good segue because athletics and business, the business world, very similar. The the idea is to to succeed, you have to be able to be smart, learn from your mistakes, and do something with them that's productive. And self-compassion is precisely the tool you need. Lots of research to support this. It's precisely the tool you need to be able to do so.
2: You know, Kristen, staying with, with that idea. So, you know, mental chatter is something that we talk a lot about, right? When when, when you have that inner dialogue and that that committee that is always self critical. And in a way, uh, is this trying to change that into a positive inner dialogue? Like we have positive mental chatter. Is that what ultimately, would you say, self-compassion results in?
0: Yes, yeah, so but it's 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 similar to positive thinking, but it's not quite the same. So positive thinking is often like, look in the mirror, every day I'm getting stronger and stronger. Well, maybe that's not so true after a certain age, right? And so what the research shows is that positive thinking only works if it's credible. And if you don't really believe it, it actually can make things worse. And so self-compassion, so when we're with our own suffering, you know, or failure or, or feelings of imperfection in a compassionate way, we aren't denying what's true. What we're saying is, yeah, that sucked. That performance was subpar, <laughs> you know. But what you're doing is just because your performance was subpar doesn't mean that your worth as the individual is any less worthy. Okay, I blew it. Ouch, that really hurt. So, so there's three components to mindfulness: there's, um, mindfulness kindness and common humanity. So the mindfulness is acknowledging it. That's not positive thinking That's saying that hurt, that didn't go well, you know, I failed. Okay. Um, then kindness. Well, this is how we learn. This is part of being human. Just because I failed doesn't mean that I'm a failure. How can I be encouraging and supportive toward myself to learn from this failure? And the really key is what makes this compassion and not pity is common humanity. Again, framing this in light of the human experience. It is human to fail. Everyone fails. This is how we learn, you know. And how does how do my how do my actions integrate with that? That is the larger whole. And then when you bring that lens to your suffering again, it it's not like you're covering over it or papering it over. You're embracing it with this field of kind of kindness and connection and presence. So so both are there simultaneously. The negative is still there, but there's also the positive. And this might be interesting to you all since I know you're into consciousness, but if you don't mind me going here already. So what's happening, you might say, what's arising the contents of consciousness are the pain, the thoughts of inadequacy, that, you know, whatever chatter is going on, the emotions that are going on, what you're really doing with self-compassion is you're switching from the contents to the awareness itself. You're switching to that field of loving, connected presence that's actually, that the contents are arising in. And that perspective shift going from the small, limited sense of self to this larger, more connected sense of self is a big part of why self compassion is so effective.
2: Love it. Love it. You know, the work of Martin Seligman, which I know you cite a little bit in your book as well, and I found very influential in multiple ways. But one of them is around the idea of optimism versus pessimism. Yes. We have learned helplessness, which I think is how he started his research, but then ultimately figuring out how to cultivate. More of a uh, an optimistic outlook, and the the three P's I think he calls them. When you you know it's it's a self. How do you explain life to yourself, basically? And he uses personalization, permanent, personal, and pervasive. Right. So if there's something bad that happens, and if you make it personal, and you make it permanent, and you make it pervasive, like yes, I drop a bottle of wine on the. I said, oh, I can never do anything right. Yes, exactly. Very personal, permanent, and pervasive, and that's going to over time make you more and more pessimistic. Reflecting a lack of self-compassion in that. So, by the same token, if something positive happens, you do the opposite. You actually make it personal, permanent, and pervasive to say, "Yeah, I can do this." Right. And so, uh, uh, draw the connection between self-compassion and and that kind of uh, uh, reframing of things that happen, so that over time it builds up towards more of an optimistic outlook.
0: Yeah and and the research is pretty strong that self compassion does increase optimism. Partly it's just because of the, the any time um you you get unstuck from a negative thought and emotion and you can see the bigger picture. It's kind of uh, Barbara Fredrickson talks about it as the broaden and build effect, right? So the negative emotion or thought narrows your attention. When you have a positive thought, so remember it's not papering over. You did you did break bottle of wine. That's true. You're not going to pretend that it's not a problem because maybe you just ruined your wife's beautiful new rug and she's going to be pissed off about it. Okay. That's the truth. Um, But does that mean that you're a, you know, a screw up that can never get anything right? No, it means that, okay, this happens. um, And then it's only human to happen. I'm not the only person who's had this happen. And so your heart becomes more tender and feeling more connected when you do that. As soon as you Um, move from that narrow contracted thought to the larger kind of, again, awareness of, you know, this hurts. Um, What can I do? What can I learn from this? Then you're broadening your view. And then once you broaden your view and you aren't so contracted and limited, then you can be more optimistic. Oh, well, gosh, I can see that maybe it's because I need a rug pad or I don't know, (laughs) or maybe there, maybe there were some reasons at play that meant that I was more likely to drop the, the wine bottle or the wine glass. What might I do differently? What productive change might I make? So what happens when you move from this small limited self to more of this bigger connected self is the field of possibility opens. You know, there's there's more choices you can make. There's more options you have. Again, you aren't saying that I'm perfect I'll never fail again. You will fail again. But you aren't just a failure. And you move from kind of more to this process orientation. Which I think feeds into the optimism and hope because you aren't you aren't identified with this small limited sense of self.
1: Yeah, I love the way you phrased that at the beginning of sort of saying, hey, there's this content, and then there's your inner consciousness and awareness of, of what's going on inside of you. And um, you know, I want to go back to sort of the notion of vertical development of human beings and the, you know, K- Kagan and Leahy's thoughts about adult development, and and I, I'm wondering how you connect because that that level of awareness. You know, I was with the leadership team this week uh, earlier, and you know, we were having this discussion about you know levels of awareness and consciousness, and um, it's hard to have that discussion without starting to imply that there are some people who are more evolved, more developed, more awake, more aware, more conscious. Um, so I'm curious, when when we get into that discussion, you said, here's content, here's consciousness. Oh, yeah. okay. How do we work with uh, um, the, the fact that some people are, you know, beginners in that area, and some people, like you and Raj, are more in the advanced class? <laughs> Well,
0: personally, I think it's it's a very dangerous if you start seeing these as like levels of evolved consciousness. This is available to anyone and any time. So without getting too... So actually, uh, I'm a student of, of non-duality, which is kind of focuses, you might say, in some ways, the ability to switch from the ordinary mind, which is limited self and objects, to, you might say, um, expanded mind. Which is understanding that the consciousness is always here. You don't have to be a yogi for 40 years or take courses or get a PhD to do this. Anytime you're taking a walk and you get to a vista and you see and you kind of you kind of drop out of your limited sense of self and you see the bigger picture, you're an expanded mind. Um, the expanded this expanded sense of self is actually very ordinary way of being. Um, There there are exercises you can do. So I'm not just about thinking about this. I like to give concrete practices for people to do to understand how to relate to this. Anytime you kind of just shift into noticing what's happening through a simple practice, you're already there. It's actually not rocket science. This is a natural capacity of the human mind. It's just that we're so drawn in by our thoughts and emotions, we don't even notice. You don't have to, you know, it helps to meditate. Yeah, it does. Okay. I'm not, not going to deny it. It helps to practice and to meditate and to learn it. But this is, anytime anyone's engaged in a task, they're really in, enjoying it. And their sense of separate self kind of goes and in, we into the background and what's in the foreground is really, wow, this is happening right now and I'm enjoying the present moment. Then they're already there. But finding ways, and this is, I'm getting more interested. As I've got a ton of self-compassion practices, but I'm getting more interested in actually developing my new line of work. You might say, is in developing ways to help people switch from more limited sense of self to this expanded sense of self. Um, Partly by bringing in non-dual techniques. It sounds really fancy. It's not. But I'm really excited about this because anyone can do it. You don't have to be a sage. You don't have to be Robert Keegan or <laughs> like, I said yeah.
1: So as you say that, what would be a, a couple of simple exercises that, you know, you could give to our listeners so that they can say, ah, I get what she's talking about.
0: Okay. We can just do it right now. So it's a very, um, we can call it drop out of your head into your heart. So right now, both Raj and Timothy, just notice you don't have to close your eyes, but you can, if you want, it's up to you, but you can, uh, we can close our eyes. We'll do this. Close your eyes. Okay, and just notice your sense of self right now. Where's your sense of self located, right? For most people, it may not be your experience, but most people it's kind of like a sense of self right behind the eyes, like a little bubble in your head we think of as ourself, and that's because our thoughts are generally experienced here. So we're in our head, right? You might say this is more ordinary, everyday mind, Um, and often in this From this point, we feel kind of limited, we feel inadequate, we feel imperfect. And so now see if you can actually drop your center down from behind your eyes to your jaw. So just imagine that the center of your experiences was in your jaw. And then drop it down into your neck. And then drop it down into your chest area, your heart center. So just kind of imagining that the center of your experience is actually in your heart center. And now imagine expanding it out so you aren't within the confines of your skin and bones body. But the center of your experience expands out beyond your body. So to fill the whole room you're in. So that your center of experience is actually this larger field of uh, loving awareness, right? And then from this place, if thoughts or emotions arise, you can realize you aren't the same as these thoughts and emotions, right? You are the loving awareness in which these thoughts and emotions are arising. So why don't we go ahead since we're here? That's kind of fun. I'm doing this totally spontaneously, by the way. (laughs) Think of something in your life right now that's maybe troubling you, stress you have, maybe you've recently moved, (laughs) or you've got some other um, stressor in your life. So just allow yourself to think about this stressor. Right. So being being aware that yeah, this is difficult, this is painful. Um, but my experience is bigger than this particular experience of pain or discomfort or stress. You know, remembering that you aren't alone in this experience. this is very human part of being a human being in this planet, stress happens not just you. And then from this more expanded sense of uh, self, this larger, loving, compassionate sense of self, what words of support or encouragement might you have towards yourself right now in this experience of stress? Might be something like, this too shall pass. I'm here for you. You're doing the best you can. What, What words naturally arise from this more expanded, compassionate self? Okay, and then coming back reconfiguring into your actual skin and bones body, feeling your feet on the floor, (laughs) your body on the chair. And then when you're ready, you can open your eyes. So so basically the self-compassion break, which is when you bring in the three components of compassion, the mindfulness, the common humanity and the kindness, something I've been doing for years and kind of the cutting edge of where I'm going now, which I'm really excited about because I think it's helpful, is also playing with this sense of self. Are we in kind of limited, contracted self? Are we in expanded, expand? Or you might say infinite self, higher self, whatever whatever word works for you. And I feel like when people get in touch with that, and it's the thing is, this is what's amazing me. I found people can do it. And it doesn't matter if you're religious, or you're agnostic, or you're, you know, science. it doesn't matter. Everyone has some sense of a bigger self, expanded self, that they can tap into at any moment without having to, you know, spend two weeks at a silent meditation retreat. And I'm just so excited about the possibilities of using this as a pathway, because, you know, the big thing about self-compassion, some of my Buddhist friends are mad at me for calling it self-compassion, like, um... Dan Siegel says, Kristen, you shouldn't call it self-compassion. The word self is a problem. Get rid of it. Call it inner compassion. I'm like, okay, if that works for you, that's fine. There's really not a lot of self and self-compassion. There's just this field of compassionate awareness that embraces whatever's happening in our inner experience. And so this is... And by the way, I haven't talked about this much. So you two are special because this is my new direction. I'm starting to lead retreats to the non-dual teacher a friend of mine named Kaverly Morgan. And we're going to bring this more and more into it. Because I just think, especially for people maybe who feel they aren't capable of being self-compassionate or they've got self doubts so or it seems too hard. It's like, yeah, maybe it's hard for the limited self, but is it hard for your higher self? Is it hard for your expanded self? maybe
2: not so hard wonderful you know the last chapter of your book is about self appreciation yes uh, and i think that's uh, that's another that's the other side of this many of us tend to downplay you know the gifts and the capacities that we have and you know it feels kind of uh, ego- egotistical to some people to do so but the fact is we did not make ourselves yes we, we are in a way a gift to ourselves right so we've received all of this from somewhere, so appreciating that, not appreciating that would be ungrateful, right? It's like you know you received all of this as an enormous gift for free. So, so I talk a lot about loving yourself. You know, I have a framework which goes from knowing yourself, loving yourself, being yourself, right, expressing yourself, you know, healing yeah. yourself, etc. And so, for me, self-compassion and self-appreciation are the two things that you need to do in order to love yourself. Would you agree? Is that
0: Yeah, absolutely. So self-appreciation is really just the flip side of self-compassion. They both come. You look at the three components, mindfulness. We need to be aware of our positive qualities. So compassion, just by definition from the Latin, is focused on suffering. But it's obviously suffering is only, the glass is only half empty. The other half is half full. So self-appreciation is a corollary. We're mindful of our positive qualities. We're aware of them. We don't just downplay them or ignore them. Um, We remember that common humanity is really important here because, again, when the sense of self feels contracted, like we're really identified, it feels like eh, egotistical. It feels like kind of selfish, doesn't feel comfortable. But if we expand it to include, oh, my parents and my teachers and all the beautiful books I read, we expand our sense of self so the gratitude goes beyond our small self. It's a lot easier. And then the kindness is the expression of appreciation for ourselves. Right. And again, it's when we do that in a more general way, it's not like, you know, I am great. I am perfect. When we're identified with these positive qualities that becomes problematic. But it's just in general. Yeah, I have beautiful moments. I have moments of humor, you know, good things that happen as well. Good things that arise in me uh, from this more expansive perspective. Then this is what creates that or self-appreciative mindset. It's really all goodwill. And. Um, you know in in buddhism they call it a loving kindness so or, or metta or benevolence so there's there's a, a great uh, quote by a um a, a monk who said when loving kindness meets the, the tears of sorrow the rainbow of compassion appears you might say the, the loving the, the goodwill the benevolence um is in general so when it, when it shines on our good qualities this feeling of appreciation and gratitude arises when it shines on our could use a little work qualities or the parts of our life that are, that are troubling that the feeling tone, just, we don't do it on purpose, by the way, it just naturally creates, creates this more tender. Um, as this kind of kind of bittersweet feeling. The sweetness is the love. The bitterness is because you're really opening to the pain. Like, Oh, you know, that, that feeling, but the, the sunshine, you might say in both cases is the same.
2: Yeah, and I feel the need for this is so great, because I would say the vast majority of people out there, you know, do not love themselves. You know, Bruce Lipton says 80, 90% of people, you know, kind of hate themselves. And 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 then I used to think, okay, if you don't love yourself, that means you can't love somebody else. But he says more than that, it's that you cannot receive the love of somebody else, because you think you're not worthy. If you're not worthy of your own love, why would you be worthy of somebody else's love? Right? And so it was so widespread. I think that is so much self-inflicted suffering in that sense.
0: I do you have to? Say, can I give you a little um, data point on that, Raj, about that you can't love other people until you love yourself? It's actually empirically not true. <laughs> or at least for compassion. And in fact, most people fall into that category. They're actually genuinely compassionate to others. You can might you know I don't want to say that their love somehow isn't real or the compassion isn't real. People are actually, and because this fits with, is allowed by our culture and remember evolutionarily, people can be generally good, loving, kind, caring people and treat themselves like crap. It, it actually, it, a lot of people fall into this category. It's not like their love or their compassion is somehow false, but here's what it is. It is limited in that, A, they are going to burn out. So when compassion just flows one way and not inward, it's inevitable that you'll burn out. So to sustain being loving and caring for others, we need to give ourselves compassion. Um, and there, and you're right about that. It means you can't receive it back. This it's kind of more in a one-way direction. And so true intimacy comes when there's this flow of outward and inward. And so it's, it's not that it's not real when it flows out, but it's just kind of limited. And it's the, it limits the amount of intimacy you can have and the sustainability of it. So that was one of the, Kind of surprising findings of my research. The first time I correlated self-compassion and compassion for others, I got a 0.00, 0.00 correlation. And the reviewer said, Is that a mistake? And I no, that's actually what we found. 0.00. Means they're totally orthogonal. Now we find when you train people to be more self-compassionate, so they start understanding these concepts more, that it actually does increase compassion for others. But if you just look at the average population who's never even thought of these ideas, they're pretty separate. And and in every case, they're more compassionate to others than themselves.
1: I I, I love that reframing, you know, of basically saying without self-compassion, you're really not open to receiving the love of someone else because you are more shut down. You are doubting it. You're constantly... And so many people escape into being the caregiver. Yes, and look, I'm a loving person. I'm, yes, I'm giving all this love, but nobody loves me. We've done work with uh, with romantic couples and people who
0: are um, really hard on themselves. The relationships aren't as good because you know if you're self compassionate, your, your partner doesn't have to meet all your needs. And let's face it, you know, if it's like, I'm so good to you, why are you good to me back? And this kind of resentment, if you expect your partner to meet all your needs and they can't do it as you want, when you want, on the, you know, on the dot. Um, and so the, we do find that intimacy again, and the relationships are better, more mutually supportive when people are self-compassionate, which totally supports what you say, Raj.
1: Yeah, I, I love that. And as you, as you, in your work, have you found that there are and I, I hate to go to men and women because the, there's such a variety of men and women. And at the same time, there yes. are these ideas we have about masculine and feminine. And and I'm curious, wh- how does this play out on that scale? How does the, the modern masculine man and his dilemma face into this? And what does it mean for the modern woman who's trying to step into a different kind of place?
0: Yeah, so, so gender role socialization, so to be clear, we aren't talking about um gender identity, whether you might be non-binary or you might identify as masculine or, or a male or female. I'm talking about gender role socialization. Were you put in the blue box shoe box or the pink shoe box when you were a little? So it actually has a pretty big impact on self-compassion. Uh, so first of all, believe it or not, women have slightly uh, lower levels of self-compassion than uh, people raised as men do. And yet, if you go to one of my self-compassion workshops, 85% of the people who show up are going to be women. So the reason they have a little less self-compassion in general is because um, women feel are raised not to, not to focus on meeting their own needs. They're really focused on meeting other, others' needs. So that levels of compassion for others are higher. Their levels of self-compassion are lower. Just a little bit. It's not huge. The difference is bigger in compassion for others. Because they feel less entitled to meet their own needs. And power and privilege plays into this at some level. Are they able to meet their own needs? Actually, one of the things that defines power is the ability to meet your own needs. So that's part of it. But lately, I've been also been talking about fierce and tender self-compassion. So tender self-compassion is about acceptance of ourselves, our own worth, and kind of acceptance of our emotions. And it has a more tender feel to it, like a kind of a parental feel to it. There's also fierce self-compassion, which is taking action to alleviate suffering, maybe making change, standing up for ourselves, drawing boundaries, meeting our own needs. And gender role socialization harms people raised as men or women in different ways. So people raised as men are really harmed by the fact that it's all about fierce self-compassion. Conquer the world, make change, do it, draw boundaries, be powerful. But if you're tender, we're gonna we're gonna call you names. We might even bully you. So people raised as boys early on are really hard. Their emotional intelligence is harmed by the fact that if they're too tender or sensitive to their emotions, they're they're, they're given a lot of bullying and you know name calling, which cuts men off from a really important source of healing and growth, which is emotional intelligence. I'm sure you you two talk about this all the time. Um. People raised as women or girls, on the other hand, they aren't allowed to be fierce. There's a little more leeway in gender role socialization for girls and boys, but still, like, like if a man is angry, people are more likely to believe what he says. If a woman is angry, they're more likely to think she's crazy. So, female anger or passion or that kind of act, you know, Kamala Harris, oh, she's so ambitious. Who would never say that about a male politician? So people raised as women, if they're, if they're too active, they're too agentic, if they're too ambitious or get angry, then there's backlash. You know, it's, But the thing is, it's like yin and yang. We need both tenderness and fierceness to be whole. Everyone, regardless of, again, gender identity, doesn't matter, non-binary, doesn't matter. We all need yin and yang to be in balance. And gender role socialization really harms everyone by not allowing that balance to be fully integrated. So my my latest book is a lot about gender role socialization. I think I really see self-compassion as a radical act of authenticity, where you say, what's true for me? regardless of what society says I'm supposed to be like, what's true for me? What's in my heart? And and it gives us the ability to ask that and answer that question.
1: Beautiful. Really beautiful. Thank you.
2: I'm also interested in the consequences, right? So when you do have self-compassion, when you do have self-love. Yeah. Uh, first of all, if you don't love yourself, you're not going to take care of yourself. Yes, right so, yeah, so for decades, I would say I was at war with my own body. i was I used to smoke. I was at war with my lungs. I used to drink, I was at war with my liver. you know, I was just like, ah, whatever. But then, when you get to that place and I'm a work in progress, you know then actually you start to focus and prioritize and take care of yourself. right? And I think you talked a lot about that as well. That, uh, you know, it leads to healthier habits, it leads to, uh, you know, diet and exercise, all the things you do for yourself, right, once you get to that place. So the benefits of this are not just psychological and relational, but really in terms of your, your health as well, right?
0: And by the way, not only because of self-care, but actually through the immune system, because there is an interaction between self-compassion. So self-compassion activates parasympathetic nervous response. Um, self-criticism activates sympathetic nervous response. Again, that fight, flight, or freeze. And so, when you're in, in sympathetic overdrive all the time, your cortisol levels are elevated. It, your immune system functions less um, well, and it leads to things like you know elevated blood pressure. So the research shows that not only do you, first of all you sleep better when you're self-compassionate, <laughs> which helps. You take better care of yourself. But your body functions better because you're you have increased heart rate variability, for instance, longer telomeres. So this as you, I'm sure this will be a surprise to you. There's a strong heart, a mind-body connection. So self-compassion is good for you not only relationally, not only emotionally, but also physically. You can see why I'm so passionate about this. I mean, it's just amazing. And it's here's the thing about self-compassion. It's like the superpower. And it's in our back pocket. We can pull it out. And, any moment we don't even know it's there that's why my life's mission has been to let people know hey it's there it's not it's really it's not very difficult just pull it out use it hey go ahead you know why not
1: <laughs> well, i love your energy and your passion around this and and i think as we sort of pivot a little bit to the leadership question and, and what this means for leaders at least one element that i'm taking away and it's related to what raj said is you know to be at your bet you know you to be at your best. If you want to be a high performer, if you want to be at your best at work or at play or international rock climbing, um, you know, you've got to have some of these elements, because if you do have that self compassion and that self kindness, and you are taking better care of yourself and your body, then you're going to have more good days than bad days. Look, you know, and. So that's one element that I'm sure comes in. Absolutely. And I'm curious, what other elements do you think come in in terms of the lessons for business leaders, male or female? Yeah. When, when we get into this space.
0: So there is research that shows that it is good in the workplace. For instance, here's one thing it gives you. Research shows that self-compassionate leaders are more respected by their employees and staff. Why? For a lot of reasons. Um, a, self-compassion leads to greater authenticity. There's been a lot of work about authenticity in, in the workplace and for leaders. Self-compassion is one of the best ways to have authenticity because when you aren't so worried about what other people think about you, because you care about and support yourself, it allows you to be authentic. And also um, you're more able to live in accord with your values. Again, because when you care about yourself and you don't want to suffer. You're going to be thinking more, well, what 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 do I need? What do I care about? What do I value? So there's more congruency with values, which helps. Um, modeling self-compassion, is, because it really is a, it's a form of emotional intelligence. And there's a lot of research that shows that emotionally intelligent leaders who are able to say, okay, let's make, maybe a leader makes a mistake. Instead of like blaming other people, and people know that you're blaming someone else. Okay. You know, that leader can't take responsibility. Wow. That leader just took responsibility. I made a mistake. Own it. Instead of saying, I'm stupid, I'm an idiot. Okay, well, it happens. This is how we learn. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to learn from it? How are we going to grow from that? You know, modeling that for others, people people respect. Um, it allows you to be uh, less anxious and deal with stress better. So that's good qualities for a leader. If you're, if you're, you're calmer, you aren't so stressed, you aren't... Not that you aren't stressed, you aren't so overwhelmed and knocked off balance by the stress. You're better able to cope with it. You're better able to cope with stress, which is important. Uh, less fear of failure. More willing to take um, considered risks, which is important for a good leader, right? If you're, if you're worried about failing because, oh, if I fail, what are people going to think about me? You're you're going to be risk averse. So being able to take, you know, but also informed risk because you also care about yourself. So you don't want to do something stupid either. And so really, in every aspect of leadership, how you relate to yourself, how you relate to your business, how you relate to your employees, caring about your well-being, and especially because remember, this the self and self-compassion, it's not really a separate self, it's a connected self. So when you care about yourself as a leader, you also care about your organization, because that's kind of an extension of you as well. And so it, it's all positive.
2: So, Christian, we're always interested in how people got to where they are and what shaped them and what uh, inspired them to do the work that they do. And I know in your case, like with many of us, it came out of a kind of crucible moment in your life, right? A very difficult time. Uh, I know you spent a year in India. I'm also curious about that. What took you at a young age to India for that year and then uh, how this work emerged out of some of that suffering that you were going through at the time? If you could share some of
0: that, yeah. So I'll, I'll share um, some of it. I go into detail in in my books, including airing some of my dirty laundry, you might say, because I thought it was really important that I didn't come across as someone who's got all their shit together, and you know, be like me and be perfect like me. You know, I lay it out there. I've got I've got my stuff like everyone, and so I I talk about it in, in detail, but just the the in the general guidelines. Um, I went to India. Actually, I didn't go to India. Um. To look at self-compassion, I went because I was studying moral development. Um, and I was really interested in the interplay of culture and moral development. But I was always fascinated by India. So I spent my my dissertation year in India. That was in 94, uh, gathering data. Reasoning about rights and responsibilities in the context of Indian family life was my dissertation. So I went there for that. But... Right before I left, um, I split. I was I got married early. I split from my husband. It was very messy. It was kind of a lot of stuff happened. So I was feeling bad about my failed marriage and 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 going. You know, so India was partly recover recovery from that. And then I got back to, to write up my PhD at Berkeley. That was about ninety five. And so I was feeling badly about my divorce and feeling like a failure. And then I was really stressed because I knew I'd probably passed my dissertation defense, but the job market, like there were no jobs. I'd just spent five years getting this PhD. Where was I going to get a job? I'd be overqualified even to work in the library. So I was a lot of stress about that. What am, what am I going to do? And so I'd heard about mindfulness meditation, right? And I was in Berkeley. So there was literally a mindfulness meditation group right down the street from me. And I heard mindfulness was good for stress. And fortunately for me, the mindfulness group was taught in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. You've probably heard of him, a Vietnamese Zen master recently passed, who always talked a lot about self-compassion. I mean, my life would have been so different if I had gone to like a mindfulness-based stress reduction course, but I didn't. I went to a Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha, and the very first night, you know, it took me a while to understand meditation, but the very first night, the woman leading the course talked about self-compassion about how we need to be kind and supportive and treat ourselves like a good friend. So I went home and I said, Kristen, this is such a hard time. You know, you're feeling badly about your failed marriage. Well, you aren't alone, it happens, it's only human. You know, yes, you're stressed about your future, but it'll be okay, something will work out. Really key, I'm here for you, what do you need? I'm here, I'm here for you, what do you need? And immediately I felt more capable of coping with what I was going through. And I thought, wow, this shit works, <laughs> you know? And then I did get a real job, um, eventually, at UT Austin. And I thought, okay, well, why don't I study it? No one else has looked at it empirically. I mean, I, I certainly didn't come up with the idea but I can operationally define it. And I came up with my three-component model, kindness, common humanity, mindfulness. I created a scale to measure it. And then now there's, I think last I looked, there was over 6,000 studies and dissertations on self-compassion. So it's a huge field. I can't keep up with it. It's, it's way bigger than I am. At this point
2: so wow. yeah you got that started that's so wonderful what a contribution you've made
0: but you know people say oh kristen i'm, I'm so grateful for your work it's like yeah I, I made a contribution i'm not gonna like minimize it I, i'm proud of it but it's really self-compassion that does it all because self-compassion works people hear about self-compassion they try it they see oh this works and it's really self-compassion that sells itself you might say um, I'm just someone who tried to do what I could to get it out there in the world. And then research makes a big difference, it makes a big difference, the research
2: yeah. yes and it's part of the therapeutic uh, modalities as well, now, right? A lot of people are using it in therapy,
0: yes, it's funny. People think I'm a therapist. I'm not a therapist. i'm a I'm actually a psychometrician by training. Uh, anyway. um, but yeah, so in therapy, what we're finding in the research that self-compassion is one of the key mechanisms of effective therapy, regardless of what modality you practice. So you might be a Freudian, you might be a a cognitive behavioral therapist, you might be internal family systems, psychoanalyst. What makes good therapy is people internalize the therapy, the compassion of their therapist toward themselves. They start kind of having their own compassionate therapist in their own mind. They understand themselves, they're less judgmental and that's actually one of the reasons why therapy
2: works. Um so I I'm, I'm a big follower and fan of Gabor Maté's work. Uh-huh. The wisdom of trauma and his he's trained about 2000 therapists in compassionate inquiry. Yes. Really getting to the root of people's wounds and their traumas and then as you know, most people have un healed and unacknowledged uh, wounds and traumas and therefore they could do life being triggered by so many things. I just you know, really compassion is at the at the core of that.
0: Yeah, you, you have to be self-compassionate towards your trauma. You need the mindfulness to be with it to turn toward it you know, so to have actually the strength and the presence to actually go there. By the way, you don't want to just like rip open the doors of your heart and be with your trauma because that's going to overwhelm you. That actually may re-traumatize you. So the most self-compassionate thing to do is like dip into it. Okay, okay, a little too much. Okay, I'll close down. All right, I feel safer. Okay, open up a little more. So it's a process with the mindfulness. Common humanity, people who are traumatized, you feel so much like it's just me or something's wrong with me. They blame themselves or feel cut off. Remembering that, and sadly, this is part of the human experience. People aren't alone. It happens. And then the kindness, the kind of being there for yourself, that feeling of I I will not abandon you. I will not traumatize you. I will care for you. What do you need? How can I help? Having that internal kindness constantly is so important for healing for for trauma. So yeah, it's huge for trauma.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm glad that you circled back to that. I think that's very, very helpful to to connect those dots and and now I'm curious if we gave you a magic wand and we said, here's your magic wand, okay. wave it. What big change would you want to see in how we develop leaders in business today? If you had a magic wand, I want, what would you, what would you ask for?
0: Yeah. Well, so you, you're going to know my answer, right? Because there's only one answer I'm actually I uh, Qualified to give as well, but I do think that I would love to see self-compassion training be integrated in, a, in our education system. So whether you're going to business school, whether you're training to be a doctor or a healthcare professional or a lawyer or really any realm of life. So I used to, um, I actually recently re- retired from teaching at UT Austin. I still do research, but I used to teach an undergraduate course in self-compassion. And I can't tell you the number of students who said this is the most important course they took as an undergraduate, because this is an important life skill. So I think as people get trained to know how to be leaders, that know how to run a business, you know, all the nuts and bolts of it, and more and more, there's more awareness of being intelligent in terms of managing people, how to be a good leader of other people. How to be a good leader for yourself. Like, what's your internal leader saying you, you or your mentor, your coach, whatever. Your, what's your internal business coach, maybe, if that's the best metaphor? What's it saying to you? Maybe imagine the best, most helpful, supportive, kind, which also means honest, business coach. You have, what would they say right now? And then most people could probably think, oh, they probably wouldn't say you're your screw-up, give up now. That's probably, you know, you probably stop paying that business coach. And so we we know, the thing is, we know so much more than we think we do. We know what to say. We know how to say it because we have experience mentoring and coaching others. And so really getting that message across, I would love to see that in, in almost any walk of life. But I think as business leaders become more self-compassionate, it also means that you're switching the focus. So it's not so self-focused, it's more like human focus which also leads to more ethics in business as well, right? And but consciousness, which you two are all about. Um, we can't leave the self out of this puzzle. It's, it's an integral part of it.
1: Uh, lovely. You put it very well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Um, Raj, anything on your side that you'd like to add that we haven't addressed yet or like to?
2: the only other thought that came to me, you know, uh, Gay Hendricks talks about the upper limit problem that we put a limit on ourselves as to how happy and successful we feel we deserve to be. Right. And that could come from your parents. It could come from society a variety of factors. So it's kind of a self-limiting way that we live our life. And I think, you know, like with so many other things we've talked about, self-compassion is is the way out of so many of these emotional cul-de-sacs that we paint ourselves into. Right, so yeah. I think that's... Uh, and
0: these are just thoughts, right? So the ability of to de-ident- disidentify with thought and realize that you're bigger than your thoughts and emotions, your, your awareness actually is not the same thing as your thoughts and emotions, then we aren't so limited by our thoughts and emotions. Like, oh, yeah, that's a thought. Is it true? Maybe, probably not, actually. you know, that, Again, that's that perspective shift, which is so key. I'm actually curious about you two. How do you think self-compassion would relate to what you all do with your conscious capitalist
2: work? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, so many leaders burn themselves out in service of the company and the job and so forth. And, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, they put themselves last, you know, in terms of self-care or, or prioritizing their well-being, you know, and I think that is something. That is, that is, uh, you know, for leaders, taking care of yourself is not a selfish act. It's the most generous act that you can perform because uh, it's like they say in the airplanes, I right? put on your own oxygen mask. So I think that is something that people are maybe intellectually aware of, but very few people actually practice that. You know, what I've learned recently coming out of this Ayurveda retreat is that you have to put your well-being, you know, most people put work and family and fun in some order of priority. And then maybe their own well being down there below that somewhere, their health and well being. And so, what if you put that number one? Is that going to come at the expense of your work? No, it's going to enhance your work. Is that going to come at the expense of your family? No, it's going to make your family, you know, mm. it's going to fit your family and your ability to enjoy life. And so, I think that moving that up to the highest priority, I think is something that's very counterintuitive to many of us because many of us are in service and we are. You know, in that sense, uh, you know, other-centered. But I think we have to understand the difference. Just like you know, we say we love yourself too much, you become a narcissist. Well, that's not what we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Healthy level of all of these things, right? So that you are ultimately, in order to be of greater service, you need to heal yourself, right? You need to take care of yourself. I think it's a very important message for our community.
1: Yeah, I think that's right, Raj. And, and then what I might add is, and you touched on it a little bit, was Kristen was um, the authenticity, because I think increasingly, um, what we're learning is the the quote unquote great person theory of leadership is dying. You know, um, you know the level of knowledge, the level of complexity that we're dealing with today is increasing exponentially, and the ability of any individual to make sense of it all is getting less and less that pushes us more to be able to make team-based decisions and be working better as teams and there's to my mind uh, a really important difference between the authenticity of caring for others versus i'm erotically driven to be there for others (laughs) Uh Uh and when you really are trying to develop a team that authenticity i like to say you know Young children and dogs, you know, that they can figure out real quickly what your vibe is. Uh-huh. If you're really yeah. trying to build trust on a team so that you can work as a team to make better decisions from multiple points of view, the more authentic you are, the more your caring seems to come from a really heartfelt, authentic place, the more trust there will be, the better decisions that the team will make. And I think that that's going to be an increasingly important part. Oh, oh, it's, uh, of the leadership model as we go forward
0: interesting yeah so when you embody it you're modeling it and then people trust you and the mirror neurons probably come into effect a little bit as well people are resonating to their brain structure with your internal compassion as opposed to your internal neuroticism for instance and that creates that feedback loop yeah i love it yeah
1: uh, and it creates trust and safety, which yes. is what, you know, we talk a lot about psychological safety in the workplace. Well, yes. a lot of that comes if you're not safe with yourself. Good luck yes. trying to create it around you. <laughs> you know, but did he criticize this day in Japan? Work hard and persevere. I don't think it's going to work.
2: <laughs> you know, I met this um, Holocaust survivor named Edith Eva Eager, who was at Auschwitz. And, you know, one of the things she said that I really stuck with me, she says, the greatest Nazi is inside us. And she's somebody who experienced the death camps, right? And she said, actually, the greatest Nazi is inside us, that own, you know, our own inner critic, you know? So, yeah, you know, it's, it's such a powerful message. Thank you so much, Kristen. Thank for you. The it's work been a lot of fun. you continue to do. And, um, yeah, really grateful for, for what you have contributed in the world.
0: Yeah, thank you. And you too as well.
1: Well, and thank you, Kristen. And thank you to our listeners. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, go over to apple and leave us a rating and whatever channel you're listening on feel free to hit the subscribe button and a special thanks to our producers tech sound and technology to monterey the business school and the conscious enterprise center there for sponsoring this podcast and we'll see you next week be well